you're listening to the sermon podcast of Galveston Bible Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit galvestonbible.org. But mostly, from wherever you're listening, we hope that the Lord ministers to you through this week's message. Before we look into God's Word, let's pray again. Father, we're about to look into your holy word. I pray that we would truly tremble at it. I pray that it would be a light that shines into our lives uh, to show us those areas where we need work, uh, where we need to make changes, and we pray that your Holy Spirit would empower us and enable us to do that. Um, I pray that you would make us one. Lord, I pray that you would unite us. The mission before us is the lost, and there's lots of them, thousands of them on this island alone. And so we just pray, God, that you would uh, use us as your church uh, to accomplish that. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I was listening to a pastor, and I uh, heard what I consider one of the best illustrations I've heard in a, in a while. Uh, his teaching was based on Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. Uh, where it says, and he, that's Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. And this pastor said that technically when he uh, entered into, uh, when he became a full-time pastor, that he technically exited the ministry, uh, that he was no longer in the ministry. And the reason that he said that is because his job was to equip the church for the work of the ministry. Uh, it's not the one who gets paid who is the one who's to do all the work. It's uh, the pastor is to equip the people in the congregation to actually do the work. And then the pastor joins them out there on the field. But you all are, uh, the, the responsibility to get out there into all the world falls on all of us, not just uh, those who are paid in the church. Uh, Sunday mor morning worship services are designed in part um, to equip you for the work of the ministry. In other words, my purpose on a Sunday morning is not to fill up 35 to 45 minutes with an inspirational talk um, about God. My words have a purpose, and they're designed to produce a conviction uh, in you, prompted by the Holy Spirit to examine yourself, uh, to see if you are following hard after God or if you're not. Uh, they are designed to encourage you to um, ask God uh, to search you, as the psalmist said, to see if there's any kind of waywardness in you, any kind of sin in your life that is hindering your usefulness to God, uh, whether that be in your interactions with God or your interactions with other people in his family, uh, people in here. James tells us in James 1.22 that we are to be doers of the word, and not just hearers only, deceiving ourselves. The illustration that this pastor used was a football illustration. We're in the football season. I think that um, the playoffs will be starting very soon, um, if they haven't started already. But he said it was about a quarterback. And he said, imagine a quarterback uh, gathers the offensive uh, team together, and he calls a play. And as he calls a play, one of the people in the huddle just says that, it's probably the best play I've ever heard. I mean, you, you really know how to call plays. It is amazing how well you call plays. And then they break the huddle, and then they all walk over to the sideline and sit down and never run the play. 
And he says, and then they come back, you know, it's another down. They haven't moved forward at all. And then he calls another play. And one guy's just like, oh man, I got goosebumps when you called that play. You are amazing at calling these plays. Like, can I tweet that later? Because this is amazing how you do it. No one calls a play like you do. And then they break and they go back to the sideline and never run the play. If you saw that, you'd be like, that is ludicrous, right? That, that's crazy to do that. And yet I would guess that many churches on most Sundays, the pastor calls the play and then the play is never run. People are hearers of the word, but they're not doers of it. They don't put it into practice. Now, there may be several reasons, but one of the reasons is because to run the play means that you are going to come into opposition, right? If you're playing football, you're looking at that 350-pound defensive player, right, that has anger and hatred written all over his face. And you know that if you run the play, you're probably going to experience pain in the process and may even be injured, right? And so we see in many churches, we see that potential opposition. And so we take the safe route, right? We take the path of least resistance, which will ensure that life, our life will not have to radically change from how it is now. It will ensure that our neighbors and our classmates and our fellow employees won't feel uncomfortable around us and, and possibly ostracize us. Anything that actually takes work or may push us out of our comfort zone in our Christian walk is to be avoided at all costs. We're all guilty of hearing the word and not putting it into practice, myself included. Uh, there are many areas that we fail in, this, uh, in, in the church, uh, but I want to just point out one uh, today that I feel uh, seems to be a continuous plague in this church and I would imagine every other church as well, and that is the area of disunity in the church. I know I talked a little bit about it last week, and I'm going to talk about it again this week. Disunity perhaps grieves me more than anything else in the church God has intended for his church to be an organism made up of such a diverse array of people with different personalities and different passions uh, coming from every ethnic or uh, cultural or socioeconomic background. People who would have never gotten together on their own are now thrown together in his church and are called to act like a family. This is what was so amazing about the first century church is that you had all sorts of people worshiping together. You had males and females, and you may think, well, that's not a big deal. Back then it was, okay? Uh, you also had Jews and Gentiles, and if you don't know how significant that was, go study how they uh, pictured each other and how they viewed each other in the first century. But you had Jews and Gentiles worshiping together, and you even had slaves and masters worshiping together in the same place. Because what happened in Christ, all of these man-made barriers were completely eliminated. And Jesus became the most important thing, the common ground. And they wouldn't let any of these other things get in their way. But Jesus knew that the temptation to throw away this unity would be great even before the church was formed. And so he prayed in the garden. He prayed that we as his church in the first century all the way to the present time would be one. 
that we would be unified. And then after Jesus left this earth, his disciples, his apostles, continued to push that. And when they saw the church uh, becoming um, ununified, they prayed against that and they wrote letter after letter talking about the importance of unity. Someone recently asked me uh, in the church, why do you talk about this so much? Is there something going on in the church uh, that we need to be aware of? And the answer is yes. There's always disunity that's going on. And I know that a lot of times, if you just come on a Sunday morning um, and you're not too active, you might not know what's going on. But I'll tell you that not a month goes by where there's not some source of disunity. That something comes to uh, my attention and it grieves my heart all the time. And I think it's been more pronounced in the last eight to 12 or eight to 10 months just because of everything that's been going on. Um, a lot of churches across the nation have, have um, suffered a lot of loss. Uh, people who have left and haven't come back for various reasons. And so disunity, uh, fights and factions are all over and they destroy churches. Satan seems to love to highlight our differences and to hide our similarities. And so we fight over all sorts of things. We fight over uh, doctrine all the time. Uh, and what I would say, secondary doctrinal points, I'm not saying that we shouldn't contend for uh, the faith that was once delivered over, that Jesus is God, that Jesus is the only way. Those are things that we do not compromise on. But there's a lot of other things that the church is just fighting uh, uh, over that they shouldn't be fighting against. And so it just creates disunity. We also fight over our practice, like our, um, our music in church and our, our worship styles. So we, we fight over those and we, uh, we complain about those. Satan always loves to bring up something that we can fight against. And just when we start to settle in, he just pokes again and says, hmm, how can you live with this, right? And there it goes again. And I'm gonna tell you, this grieves the heart of God. It grieves the heart of God when we are fighting. And once again, I'm not saying that we don't have firm uh, uh, convictions about what we believe, but we really have to discern what is an essential belief and what is a non-essential belief. And we have to realize that we will, you realize that you will never agree with everyone on everything, all right? You might come very close to me and agreeing with a lot of things, but there's gonna be some things that I'm gonna say and you're gonna be like, mm, I don't know if I agree with that. You're not gonna leave the church because of that. You shouldn't leave the church because of that. Now, if I ever I say, Jesus is not the only way to God, you know, there's other ways to God, then that's a reason to leave the church, right? But there's a lot of other things that we fight over that we simply should not fight over. I could give several examples of how Satan has worked in this church uh, to cause divisions, but I just wanna give you two today. Uh, two that I really think illustrate how we are and how we are not to uh, act in this church, how we're not to respond or, and how we are to respond. Both of them happened two Sundays ago on the same day, okay? Um, and I got permission to share this, so don't think I'm not gonna use names, uh, at least for the one person um, in uh, this first illustration, because this is exactly what happened. There was a, a person who's been coming to the church for not too long, and he came into the morning worship service at around 8.25, a.m., five minutes before we start worship. And as he walked by Tim in the sound booth, I'll use Tim's name, uh, as he walked by Tim in the sound booth, he said, hello, and Tim just didn't say anything, just saluted, like didn't look up, just saluted. And this guy said, what in the world was that about? So I got a text 
after worship, uh, about 1 o'clock in the afternoon. About 1.30 in the afternoon, I got a text that said, hey, I don't know if I'm welcome at this church. Um, this is the reception that I got today. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. And so I texted Tim, and I said, this is what someone said. And I said, here's what I think happened. And so if you were here two weeks ago, you realize or you remember that if anything could go wrong with the sound system, it went wrong with the sound system. We had feedback. One of the four speakers in this church was working, okay? And so Tim, what his responsibility was is before church is to make sure all the slides were there for the music and the scripture readings, okay? And also make sure that the sound system is working, and it wasn't. But about a half hour before worship started, a gentleman came in to the church who needed prayer and financial help. And so Tim took his time to help him. Tim actually texted me and said, hey, can you come and talk with this guy and pray with this guy? But I didn't get the text, all right? There's something with my phone. If you were here on our Christmas Eve service, you heard me talk about that. But I didn't get it until later. And I came out and I saw Tim talking with this guy in the back, and so I just uh, went out again, and then I saw the text. But Tim took his time to minister to this guy, to pray with this guy, to listen to this guy, and to help this guy out financially. And then he was behind, right? All these problems, the slides weren't done. You know, he was, he was finishing them up. And so he was just like, when someone came in, he wasn't even thinking, he was just like, you know, hello. And so this guy was like, what in the world happened? And he says, and I said, I think you misheard it. I think Satan is telling you something that did not happen. And you know what he, how he responded? He rejoiced. And he said, praise God. I'm glad it was that. And restoration came immediately. Now, after the second worship service, there was another person who has not been here for about eight to 10 months. And uh, this person came up to me after everyone cleared out and said, can I talk to you? And I'm like, yeah. And they said, I need to apologize to you. And I'm like, well, what happened? Well, uh, several months ago, I think it was in February or something like that, um, <laughs> they said, I'm angry at you, I'm bitter towards you, and that's why I've left the church. Um, they said, because several months ago, um, you stood up in church and you turned around and you said to everyone, everyone needs to stand and sing loudly. And you looked at me, and I have a condition where I can't stand for long periods of time. And I took that uh, offensively, and that's why I haven't been back. And I was just thinking, there's no way in the world that I would ever do that. And, and I was trying to rack my brain, what happened? And I think what happened is, um, uh, it was probably after the, the benediction, and I was excited about the last song that we were going to sing. It was just one of those ones that gets your blood going. And so I'm like, I want everyone to stand up and sing. But I made eye contact with this person, and they thought that I was singling them out. And Satan told them that I was singling them out. And so for months, they held bitterness against me, anger and bitterness against me. I'm gonna tell you that this happens all the time, right? We are very sensitive people. We're always looking for um, the way that people react around us, how they look at us, right? Are they dismissive or are they not? And we're interpreting these things in our minds. This is what they meant. This is why they did that. So my question is, how can we combat this? How can we avoid being duped by Satan and giving into his temptations? Well, I want to give you several steps uh, today 
We usually don't do like a step sermon, uh, but I'm going to give you several steps uh, because I just think it's that important. And I really want you to listen, okay? I really want you to examine your heart and say, okay, am I, uh, am I letting Satan get the better of me? And what are the steps that I need uh, to take uh, to avoid this? And so here's the first step. The first step is that you and I must be able to distinguish between the voice of Satan and the voice of God. You have to be able to distinguish that, right? Um, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, right? And I know them. You have to make sure that you are distinguishing between the voice of God and the voice of Satan. Now this becomes difficult because Satan actually mimics God sometimes. He will actually use the word of God and he will twist it to bring condemnation okay, or to bring something, uh, to twist it to his own uh, liking to discourage us. He did this with Jesus in, in the wilderness, right, 2,000 years ago. He actually used scripture. The Bible says this, the scriptures say this, but he was twisting it. And so Satan uses the Bible very often against us, all right? So we have to be very careful there, all right? Here's what I will say, as a general rule, if that inner voice in your head is saying, hey, be angry and hold a grudge, that it's not the voice of God, okay? I'm just gonna tell you right now, if you hear that, continue to be angry, hold a grudge, it is not the voice of God at all, because God does not do that. How ludicrous it would be uh, for God, uh, who is constantly telling us to forgive, constantly telling us to be reconciled, constantly telling us to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, to finally say, ah, except for here, okay? Except for here, you don't have to now. It's ludicrous to think that it's crazy. But someone might think to themselves, well, maybe God is telling me to protect myself from this person, okay? Uh, I'll grant that, maybe he is. That leads us to the next step. And here's the next step. Talk to the person, right? Talk to the person. Have you talked to the person? That may seem simple enough, but I think that this step is often ignored, either because we hate confrontation, which I hate confrontation, right? Or because we already know what their intentions were, right? We already know that they meant to hurt us. We already know uh, that they had evil intentions towards us. But very, but sadly, very often, we are wrong in our assessments of other people. Again, those two stories that I told both people had interactions with leaders in this church. Both inter interpreted those as negative interactions. Both were wrong in those, okay? Both were wrong. The one believed that my motives were mean-spirited and developed bitterness towards me and actually withdrew from fellowship from the church, okay? The other person, within hours, they interpreted it as negative as well, but within hours, let me say, before the sun went down, they contacted me and said, hey, here's what happened, here's how I interpreted it, am I right or am I wrong? And I said, you are wrong. And they said, praise God that I was wrong. Satan had no foothold whatsoever. Satan said, no, 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 this is what they meant. And they said, well, I need to make sure that this is what they meant, and that's not. And so Satan was stopped, and I, and I absolutely loved that. He was stopped immediately and fellowship was restored. And so if you have a grudge against someone today, angry, bitter towards someone, 
I want to ask you, have you talked to this person? Have you talked to them? I don't care how uncomfortable it may be. This is a command from the head of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ, right? It's a command from him. It's not a command from your pastor. Uh, a fallible uh, representative of Jesus is a command from him. And here's something else I would say. If someone comes to you and they're complaining about someone else, they're har- harboring anger or bitterness towards someone else, you should say, have you talked to that person, right? Have you talked to that person, okay? Uh, once again, it is a command of scripture. Why? Why? Well, because God is really, really intent on us maintaining unity. Uh, he is really intent. We are in a battle. Do you realize that? And when we're fighting against one another, we can't fight against the forces of darkness. So we need all hands on deck, and we can't be fighting uh, against one another. I, I've used this illustration before, but I think about, like, uh, you got the branches of the military forces, right? Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine. Could you imagine if they started getting jealous towards each other or angry towards each other, and they start fighting against each other? Like, that would be a disaster, right? But that's what we do in the church. We're on the same side, and then we start fighting against each other. But God is really eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit uh, that he purchased with, his, with the blood of his own son, okay? Uh, so uh, talk to the person. Well, let's say that your suspicions were correct, that this person did intend to wound you with their words or their actions. Now what? Well, now you're permitted to hold a grudge. No, you're not. You're not permitted to hold a grudge, right? No, no. Uh, here, at this point, you continue with what Jesus uh, uh, told us to do, his instructions in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20, where he says, if, you, if your brother has sinned against you, your sister has sinned against you, go and talk to them. Share with them their fault. If they will not receive you, then you take someone else along and say, hey, this is what happened, you know. And if they still won't listen to them, then you take it to the church. Now, the church in extreme cases, may need to what's known as excommunicate the person, all right? To be excommunicated from a church does not mean that they lock the doors when you come around, right? It simply means that you are treated like an unbeliever. And you're, you're still welcome to come to church because you need the gospel, right? You are treated as an unbeliever because you're actually acting like an unbeliever at that point if you refuse to be unified, reconciled with your brother or sister. But here's what I want to also say. Even if the church has to excommunicate someone, the end goal is always restoration. It is always restoration. It is never retaliation. It's never, oh, we'll get you back, right? It is always restoration. Why are we doing this? Why are we disciplining you? Why are we confronting you on this? Because we want you to be restored. We want you to act like Jesus. That's what the end goal is. Paul in Romans chapter 12 Verses 16 through 18 said this, listen to this. This is something we should always remember. Live in harmony with one another, okay? Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. And he says this, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. As, long, as far as it depends on you, seek peace with everyone. Now, according to this verse, the implication is that it is not always possible to be at peace with people. But as far as you are concerned, you need to say, have I done everything in my power to be restored to this person, to be reconciled to this person? And if you have, then you say it's out of my hands at that point, okay? Um, so, so make sure that you're talking 
<clears throat> to the person that you're pursuing <clears throat> that reconciliation with them. So what if uh, it did um, come out, it did come to the point where you had to like disfellowship with someone, uh, that you tried to uh, maintain that unity with them, but they refused to. I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to hang around you. I don't want to, you know, don't talk to me anymore. Well, this is where compassion and grace and forgiveness uh, kick in, all right? Compassion, because at that point, if that person is truly in the wrong and you've done everything that you possibly can, then that person is being duped by Satan, and they're actually fighting against God at that point. And it's a very scary place to be in, okay? It's a very scary place to be in. And here's the, here's the truth of the matter, is except for the grace of God, you'd be in that same position, okay? You could be in that same position, all right? Um, Paul addresses this in several places. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, he says this, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. And he's saying, you think you got it all together? Be careful. All right, because you could fall as well, okay? Uh, and then he's even clear in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. He says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Do you hear that? Restore. You find someone in sin, it's not like, ah, oh, look at that person. Oh, look how bad that person is. It's like, no, you come around with gentleness and you say, hey, you're sinning. And he says the whole time, keep watch over yourself because you too could be tempted in that way, all right? Uh, have compassion because you too one day may find yourself in need of compassion because you've really sinned against someone. Grace also kicks in. Uh, grace uh, for you to continue to reach out to that person who may be unreasonable or uh, disobedient to God and actual grace to extend to them. Gracious words, loving words uh, to extend to them. We have been shown grace by God, and it is incumbent upon us to extend grace to other people as well. Along with grace comes forgiveness. Forgiveness. Now, this can be a difficult one um, because the, it, it raises the question of can you actually forgive someone if they haven't asked for forgiveness? Right? Can you actually forgive someone if they haven't asked for forgiveness? Well, I think that God is asking us to have a heart attitude that is ready to forgive. Right? A heart attitude that's ready to forgive. Once again, Jesus is our greatest example. While he's hanging on the cross, being mocked, being spit upon, what does he say? He says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Now, if they continued in that rebellion and hatred towards God, they would not be forgiven for their sins, right? They would be cast into hell forever. But that offer of forgiveness was there. And I would imagine that many people um, after the cross, as the disciples went out and proclaimed the gospel, many of those people who were at the foot of the cross mocking him actually came to embrace him. They did receive that. Jesus had a heart attitude for forgiveness. And the same is true uh, for any person who is intent on hurting uh, another person and shows no remorse, they're duped by the enemy. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know how serious their offense is against God. But regardless of how much a person may have hurt us, we all need to be ready to extend forgiveness. Okay? Uh, when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, uh, one of the things he said regarding forgiveness, he said this, forgive us our sins 
as we forgive those who sin against us. And the question is, do we really want to be forgiven by God the way that we forgive others, right? And he went on to say this. He said, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. That's pretty serious, right? That's pretty serious. And the reason that we should be willing to forgive is because you and I have been forgiven so much. We've been given forgiven so much. You don't even, I don't even understand the half of what I've been forgiven. You've heard me say this before. You and I live in sin every day and it's no big deal to us anymore. If we could understand what it looks to, looks like at, for a holy God to look upon sin and how much we've been forgiven, we'd be blown away. Uh, Jesus even told a parable about this. If you have your Bibles, I'm gonna ask you to turn to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. <clears throat> right after Jesus uh, talked about uh, if your brother sins against you, go to him uh, and, and confront him. And if he won't be restored, uh, then, you know, then you take it to the church and, and stuff like that. Right after he talks about seeking restoration, he tells a very powerful story. Uh, in Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 21, Peter asks a question. Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And that was being very generous. So he's thinking, I'm pretty good, you know? And Jesus says, uh, said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but uh, 77 times. And I don't believe that Jesus is saying, you know, you're at the 77th time, this is it, right? He's just saying an infinite amount of times. And we know that because he says this, therefore the kingdom, verse 23, therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. Uh, when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold and his wife and his children in all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, I will pay you everything. Note that phrase. And out of pity, verse 27, for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe me. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then their master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Okay, that's 
very serious. To help you understand it a little bit better, you have to understand the monetary values that they're talking about. Uh, the second guy in the story uh, owes 100 denarii. Now, a denarii was one day's wages. So this is 100 days wages. So let's take it into the 21st century if you want to understand this. Take what you make in a year, divide that by three, okay? And that is how much he owed him. That might be several thousands, tens of thousands of dollars. That's nothing to sneeze at. That's a significant debt, okay? Um, but the first guy owed 10,000 talents, okay? Well, what was a talent? Well, the value of a talent was constantly changing back then. But uh, to give you a perspective from a historical documents of the time, um, it was determined that the total tax revenue that was brought in by the Roman government for the whole nation of Israel, all the way from Samaria and Galilee up in the north, all the way down um, to uh, uh, Judah and uh, Idiomene in the south, the annual tax revenue was 900 talents. 900 talents. This guy owed 10,000 talents, which would have been... 11 years tax revenue for those for all of Israel. There was about um, uh, 1.5 million people estimated to be living in there at the time. Okay, so uh, you might say you take your salary, you know, divided by three. That's how much you uh, that's how much you owe, um, or someone owes you. All right. And then you take all of the tax revenue from Galveston County, Chambers County, Montgomery County, Liberty County, Brazoria County for the next 11 years, all right? The point is that those debts are not even comparable, right? One is maybe thousands of dollars, the other is going into the millions of dollars, right? And so Jesus' point is that these debts are not comparable. Yes, thousands of dollars is serious, but not comparable to millions of dollars. The first guy in the story is you and I, right? It's you and I. It's how we have the debt that we owe against God, which is, innumerable like we could never pay it back it's astronomical the second person in the story is those people who have offended us who have sinned against us are their sins uh, uh serious against us yes they are but they don't compare to the sins that we have committed against god and god's uh, jesus point is this if god is willing to forgive you every time you sin against him then you and i better be willing to forgive someone when they sin against us Okay, and I want to ask you this. Do you understand that? Do you understand that? Do you really understand that? Not just intellectually, but do you understand that with your heart? Okay, and in obedience to your Lord and Savior, are you willing to commit to obeying this command since he poured out his blood so that you could be forgiven? I hope that we will. It would be the epitome of ingratitude and hatred to not do so. Well, the final step is this, is really it's the beginning step, the middle step, and the final step, and that is to pray. It is to pray. After all, we are told to pray without ceasing. We're told to pray continually. Uh, the whole situation should be bathed in prayer, and here's why it should be bathed in prayer. Prayer is communication with God, okay? And here's the bottom line is that you, there are so many factors in the situation that you don't properly understand. You have a very limited understanding of the situation, right? 
Unless someone came right out and said, I hate you and I never want to see you again, right? That's pretty clear. But they looked at me weird or they said this and this is how I interpret it. There's so many things that you do not understand that are going on. Your understanding is limited. And so you need to pray. You need to confess, God, my, my understanding is limited. God, I will handle this in a fleshly way. And you need to pray for divine insights. And you need to pray that you will handle every situation the way that Jesus would handle it. Jesus handled a variety of situations in a variety of different ways, but he handled them all with firmness, with understanding, and above all, he handled them with love. He handled them with love. I want to briefly look at what love is. So I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bible to the uh, purest definition that we have of love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 8. Okay, and here's what I recommend regarding this passage. I, re I recommend that you print this out and put it in several places in your house, right? Put it in your car uh, so that you can see it always, okay? And I recommend that you definitely take it out every time, right, that you need to confront someone or you're reacting to how someone treated you so that it can always be before you so that you can always react with love. Now, I would love to go through all the definitions of this, but what I'm going to do is I'm simply going to read this slowly, okay? I'm going to read this slowly, 1 Corinthians 13, okay? I'm going to read it slowly, and I want you to say, is this how I react when I confront people? Is this how I reacted the last time, okay? So here's what he says, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, beginning in verse 4, love is patience, and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. And that word resentful can mean it does not take into account a wrong suffered. It doesn't keep a record of wrongs. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. It never fails. Now you may be thinking, well, well, Jesus got angry at times, right? He's flipping over tables. That doesn't seem very loving. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, right? There are times when you need to be firm and you need to confront someone. But once again, you're not doing it out of retaliation. You're doing it because you love them. And if they continue down that road, they're going to be further away from God and you love them too much. This is a parent, right? Spanking their child, disciplining their child because they want them to go in the right way. The greatest commandment of all is to love God with all that you are. And the second commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. And when he says neighbor, he's not talking about who lives right next door to me. Anyone who comes across your path is your neighbor, okay? I am your neighbor. You are my neighbor, even if we don't live close to each other. Anyone who comes across your path, you are to love your neighbor as yourself. So how exactly do you love yourself? 
Well, let's think about this for a second. The first thing that you do in loving yourself is you make sure that all of your physical needs are met, right? You don't starve yourself. You make sure that you have adequate food and clothing and shelter. That means to love someone, to love your neighbor as yourself, means that you ensure that their physical needs are met. Do they have enough to eat? Do they have, have clothes, right? Do they have shelter over their heads? So you're making sure that you're loving them. The second thing, uh, that the way that you love yourself, is that you uh, want to be listened to, you want to be understood, and when you mess up, and you will, you want to make sure that you are shown grace and compassion and forgiveness. Therefore, to love someone as yourself means that you seek to listen to them, that you seek to understand their situation, that you seek to, when they mess up, and they will mess up, that you are seeking to extend grace and mercy and compassion and forgiveness to them as well. This is what you would want for yourself. This is what you, how you should be loving them as well. And the third thing is this. If you have forgiven someone, if you have been forgiven, you don't want someone to bring that up again and hold it against you, right? Ah, uh, but you did this that one time. No, you don't want that to happen. Therefore, to properly love someone means that you forgive and then you forget it. You do not bring it up again, okay? That's how you love someone as yourself. Now, this doesn't mean that you have to be best friends with them, okay? This doesn't mean that the relationship is going to go right back to way, the way it was before. It may take time to rebuild that trust. Okay, that's a reality. It just means that if you have forgiven someone, that you have truly forgiven them, okay? And that you're not holding it against them. Uh, love is not resentful. It does not keep a record of wrongs. There's so many other things that we could say about this, but I just want to give one final word of warning here, which should go without saying, uh, but it's where we started with, um, and this, it's this, Satan will oppose you every step of the way. That's, that's the truth, right? He loves to kill, steal, and destroy. That's what he wants to do. He, he, um, he wants to keep us separated. He does not want restoration to occur. He wants us to remain angry and bitter. And he wants divisions, uh, walls of divisions to be erected between all of us all the time. That's his ideal world. And this is why love endures all things. And this is why love never fails. And I wish I could tell you that if you are intent on restoration, that you could go to a person and say, hey, we need to be restored, and they'd be like, you're right, let's do it. But we know that that's not the case, right? And so we need to make sure that we are prayerfully sticking with the restoration process. Jesus said it's easy to love those who you like, right? It's easy to do that. But the trick comes in, the hard part is when someone is, I just don't like this person, someone is really obstinate. He's like, and he even said to go so far as to say, love your enemies, right? Love your enemies. Love those, uh, pray for those who persecute you, okay? Uh, but this battle, we need to win this battle. Once again, we are on the same side, people. We cannot be taking up arms and fighting against one another. We need to be fighting on the same side. And so I'm just gonna ask you, implore you uh, to just examine yourselves, uh, as we as we close and just say, am I bitter against someone? Am I angry against someone? Am I hearing? Am I hearing these voices in my head? Am I distinguishing between the voice of God and the voice of Satan? Have I talked to this person? 
right? Am I extending grace and compassion and forgiveness to this person? Even if they haven't asked for it, am I ready to have a heart's attitude for these things? And am I praying about this all? Praying for wisdom and insight from God. And so I pray that you do that for the glory of God and for the proper functioning of his church. You definitely do not want to hinder the work that God is doing in his church. And we do that when we're fighting against one another. So uh, let's pray. Father, we thank and praise you for who you are. Your word, as you said, is sharper than any two-edged sword. It cuts, it pierces, but it cuts in a good way. It causes pain, but it does it so that it can bring healing. I pray that you would cut the cancer out of our lives, the cancer of sin, Lord. I pray that you would cut the cancer of, of anger and bitterness and wrath, and I pray that we would be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ has forgiven us. And I pray that this would be what we do in this church, Lord. And I pray that we would be powerful, powerful witness for you, Lord, that they will know that we're your disciples by the love that we have for one another, Lord. And so I pray that we would be loving people. We can only do this if you show up if you empower us by your spirit. So I pray that you would uh, for your sake. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.